Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. Once again, we thank you for the season that we're in, the season of light, the season of hope, knowing that at the perfect time, your son was born, born of a virgin, born under the law, so that you might redeem those under the law and those of us who weren't under the law at that point to be brought into the family of God. We thank you for your word that teaches us this, that reveals this to us, that we can have faith in you, we can have salvation, we can have freedom if we place our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Lord, I, I pray that you would bless our time this morning, that your word would go forth, touch our lives, change our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A lot of people's lives can be defined by one big thing that happens in their life. It could be a tragedy. A loved one is lost too soon. A home is destroyed. A marriage falls apart. It could be a blessing. A big job promotion is awarded. An inheritance seemingly comes out of nowhere. You meet the love of your life. In the passage this morning, a man named Joseph is living a pretty decent and a pretty normal, a pretty run-of-the-mill life. Pretty common life. He's learned the trade of carpentry. That's lucrative. That's stable. That was common. That was something that you could rely on uh, to, to make a living out of day after day after day. He's betrothed as any man during this time period most likely would be. His life is very normal. It's just like any other guy his age, having learned a trade, would be. Until one day, when all of that changes. So the first point that we come to in our passage this morning is the deliberation. If you brought your Bible with you, please turn to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 18 through 25. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in a pew in front of you. Please also turn there. It's the very first book in the New Testament if you're having trouble finding it. Uh, just keep flipping, flipping forward till you see that page that says you're now starting the New Testament. And then Matthew is the very next page after that. Matthew chapter 1. Last week, we talked about the angel's announcement to Mary. And the angel's announcement to Mary was exclusive to Mary. And the account didn't really talk about Joseph. And it didn't really talk about his part in the birth announcements. This week, the Gospel writer Matthew brings us in on the other side of the story and gives us an emphasis on Joseph. The Gospel of Luke focuses mainly on Mary, whereas the Gospel of Matthew focuses mainly on Joseph in all of this. Most likely why that is, is that Matthew was writing mostly to the Jewish population to show them why and how Jesus was their Messiah in every single way, including legally. He would therefore focus mainly on Joseph because Joseph was the descendant of King David. And Jesus needed to legally be the descendant of King David like we talked about last week. And Jesus, tied with Joseph, could also be legally in the descent of King David, thus fulfilling the Messianic prophecy in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So we come in at verse 18 here. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. 
Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. This is Matthew's side of the account. Here, Matthew also makes sure that Mary is known to be a virgin. He's very clear about that. Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. He says that even though Mary and Joseph are linked legally by betrothal, they were not married yet and had therefore not yet consummated their marriage. But before they did come together as a married couple, Mary becomes pregnant by the Holy Spirit. The New King James Version translates the word of the Holy Spirit, and the NLT translates it through the power of the Holy Spirit. We talked about last week that through some unexplainable supernatural event, the Holy Spirit's power causes Mary to become pregnant with the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9's mighty God. Now back to Joseph. Where Mary, whereas Mary was most likely around 14 years old at this point, Joseph was most likely around 18 years old at this point. In the Jewish culture of this time period, when two sets of parents negotiated a marriage contract of their children, they were then seen as betrothed. Once those parents sat down and they settled upon an agreement and a bride price, then the, the, the couple, their children, were seen as betrothed from that point forward. Legally, in legal terms, married, but not allowed to consummate their marriage and subsequently live together for a one-year waiting period. That was the custom back in this day. Once that, once that, con that marriage contract was settled upon by their parents, they were seen as legally married or betrothed, but not fully married, not consummated that marriage, not living together until a one-year waiting period. During this one-year waiting period, both the husband and wife, or the, the fiancé and fiancé, would continue to li live with their parents in order to do something. And I know this sounds very unfair to the ladies here, but it was to prove the faithfulness of the wife. It was to prove the faithfulness of the woman in the relationship. If the wife, the woman, in this betrothed relationship is found to be pregnant during this time period, this one-year waiting period, and it's not from the husband, she was found to be unfaithful and the marriage could be annulled. That was it. No further questions. Joseph, being 18, we know loves Mary. And I'm sure he's very excited about being able to finally marry her. And it's during this one-year waiting betrothal period that everything changes when pregnant Mary enters the picture. Do you see the problem? Joseph could have rightfully dragged Mary to the judges at the city gates and have her stoned to death for her sinfulness. But in verse 19 we read, And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Joseph was a righteous man. He didn't want to make a public spectacle out of his wife. However, he also apparently didn't believe this crazy story about an angel and the Spirit of God and the Messiah being the cause of her pregnancy. 
He didn't want to make her a public spectacle, but he obviously didn't believe her story either at this point. His plan then is not to publicly expose her shame, but only involve, as the Jewish law required, the two required witnesses and sign the divorce document uh, quietly. But imagine, imagine you being Joseph at this point, when you find out that your betrothed, your legal wife, has obviously been unfaithful to you. He would have been heartbroken. His life was shattered. It was falling apart before his very eyes. His, wall, his world was falling down around his ears. He's been looking forward to be being married to his betrothed Mary, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it seems like he's lost everything. Everything is gone. Everything has changed. In an instant, he's lost everything. She obviously has been unfaithful to him during this one-year waiting period. Even though he loves Mary, he doesn't want to be identified with her sin and have his reputation called into question in front of God and men. So he does what is legally necessary to break off the marriage, but wants to do it in the most humane way possible. So we have the deliberation. What This is everything that's going on in his mind at this point. Everything he's wrestling with and feeling and struggling with. Secondly, we have the disclosure. What is really neat about this is that mankind, humanities, Joseph's most humane way possible is not good enough for God. It's not good enough for God. Verse 20. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She's telling the truth, Joseph. We don't know what angel this is. It doesn't say. It could be Gabriel, again, the same one, same one who gave the announcement to Mary, but we can't be sure because Matthew doesn't name the angel here. But it's the words that this angel says that are important. The angel appears to Joseph in a dream and says to him, Mary was telling the truth, man. Don't let your fear keep you from marrying her. There was no other man involved. It was through the power of the Holy Spirit. She was telling the truth. Don't be afraid to move forward. Two weeks ago, when we talked about an angel appearing to the priest Zechariah, he was both afraid of the angel and, what? Doubted the truth of the angel's message, right? Last week, Mary was not scared by the appearance of the angel himself, but the way he greeted her in calling her favored by God among women. She wasn't sure if she wanted to know what was going to follow that. What, was gonna, what the angel was going to say next. This week, in this situation, the circumstances preceding the angelic announcement are the things causing the fear and not the appearance of an angel. It's everything leading up to that that's causing the fear. Notice what the angel says. The angel does not say to Joseph, don't be afraid of me. He says, don't be afraid of believing Mary. Don't be afraid of moving forward with your relationship with her. Do you see the difference in what this angel tells Joseph not to be afraid of? 
See, with Zechariah and Mary, there was nothing that preceded the angel's appearance. Things were just going normally as they did day after day after day and year after year after year. And then, boom, all of a sudden, an angel appears out of nowhere with a message that would completely change their lives from that point forward. But with Joseph, stress and tension and struggling had been building with the situation he now found himself in and was going to threaten to ruin everything if God's messenger had not stepped in. What was the most important thing to get across to Joseph was for him to stop being afraid of his situation and move forward with trusting God wholeheartedly. To stop being afraid of his situation and start moving forward with full trust in God. Next, the angel goes on to say to Joseph in verse 21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Three things Joseph learns from this disclosure or revelation of what God is doing in his life. Number one, he can be assured that God would not abandon him. He can be assured that God would not abandon him. Joseph most likely thought that at that point, that God had abandoned him. He most likely thought, why in the world is God doing this to me and giving me all this heartache? Does he not love me anymore? What's going on? But in fact, God is personally letting Joseph know what is going on here. That's huge for his faith. I'm sure there are times in our lives when we would just wish God would tell us what's going on, right? <laughs> God, why, why won't you just tell me what's going on? Please let me in on this a little bit. We all, we, we all know here that's usually not the case, right? We just have to trust Him with our situations. Even when we can't see Him moving, there's no earthly reason to trust God with them. But in this case, when the pregnancy of the Messiah is involved, God sends an angel to bring Joseph a little bit in on his plan. Number two of what Joseph learns from this disclosure is this. His betrothed wife will have a successful pregnancy and give birth to a boy. For anyone who has ever expected a child, you know that that's the most reassuring thing you could be told, right? Nothing bad is going to happen during the pregnancy, and the birth will result in a healthy baby. Very reassuring piece of news. Number three, this is the most important information that God is giving to Joseph. The boy must be called Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. No doubt Joseph, being a righteous man, would have known the prophecy given in Jeremiah 31 regarding the Lord establishing a new covenant with His people and that He would forgive and remember their sins no more. Jeremiah 31 tells us, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Why? Because the Messiah will save them from that. The angel is essentially saying to Joseph, the son that will legally be yours will be the establisher of that new covenant as prophesied by Jeremiah. That's some big news, isn't it? Next, the the author Matthew points out something to his Jewish readers in verses 22 through 23. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. In other words, all of this turmoil that Joseph is going through has a purpose. It's not pointless. It has a purpose. In fact, it's integral and crucial to the birth of the Son of God. That he's not the natural father of this child. We talked about this last week, but that purpose is this. By Mary still being a virgin and having not had relations with any man, God is fulfilling the prophecy given to Isaiah 700 years prior to this. This verse that Matthew quotes is from Isaiah 7.14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, A virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. The New Living Translation renders it. All right then. I like that. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin, and I included this. You may see in your translation of the Bible a footnote next to virgin in Isaiah 7.14. It may point to this. It may say the virgin or young woman will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Now, can everyone see here a potential problem with Matthew simply quoting from Isaiah and blatantly translating the word from Isaiah that could mean either virgin or simply young woman as undoubtedly virgin. Does everybody see that problem? Does everyone see how it seems like Matthew could have misapplied what Isaiah's prophecy was and what fallout there could be because of that? It seems like Isaiah is only referring to a young woman. And then Matthew twists it to mean, blatantly mean virgin when it doesn't seem to originally mean only that. But we can be completely confident, and you're going to see, we can be completely confident in the fidelity and purity of Matthew's gospel, and here's why. The confusion centers around the Hebrew word alma, or virgin, or young woman, that's used in Isaiah 7.14, rather than betula, or bethula, which literally means virgin, and it specifically means virgin. So why did not Isaiah simply use betula instead of alma and avoid any confusion? Well, there's a reason for that. Firstly, every use 
you're taking notes, you can write this down. Every use, every single use in the Old Testament of the Hebrew word Alma, or virgin, or young woman, is used to describe an unmarried woman of good reputation. The most extreme use of the word is when Moses' sister Miriam, only nine years old at the time, and obviously a virgin, is described as an Alma. So every single time it's used in the Old Testament, it means virgin. The only other time that it just means girl is in the case of Miriam, and she was obviously a virgin at that point. Moreover, Betula was not always used to unambiguously refer to a virgin in the Old Testament, noted by one biblical scholar as in Deuteronomy and in Joel. Joel 1.8 says, Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom or husband of her youth. It's the same word. There the word is betula right here. The word is betula that's used there. Even though the woman there is grieving the death of her husband and doesn't explicitly mean that she was still a virgin at that point. It could be a reference to newlyweds after the consummation of that marriage. Deuteronomy 22.19 also says, They shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give it to the girl's father, because he publicly defamed a virgin of Israel, and she shall remain his wife. He cannot divorce her all her days. At the point of that reference, again, Betula is used here, but at the point of this reference, it's after their wedding night, and she's no longer a virgin in this reference. So it doesn't unambiguously always refer to virgin. Similarly, 2 Chronicles 36.17 tells us about Nebuchadnezzar's destruction of Jerusalem. So the Lord brought the king of Babylon against them. The Babylonians killed Judah's young men, even chasing after them into the temple. They had no pity on the people, killing both young men and Betula. They, didn't, they had no clue if they were a virgin or not. They were just both young men and young women, the old and the infirm. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. So again, it doesn't always unambiguously mean virgin. There the word translated as virgins in the NASB or young women in the NLT is, a, is the same word for virgin, betula, but it doesn't necessarily and explicitly refer specifically to virgins. So, all of that said, if you've been staying with me so far, all that said, Isaiah may have used Alma instead to explicitly imply and mean virgin, and here's why. Again, if you look up Alma in an interlinear Bible and concordance which notes every single instance of the word in Scripture, the only time that Alma is used to not explicitly mean virgin is that reference to nine-year-old Miriam, who obviously was, which we already referenced. Isaiah wanted to be absolutely clear about the woman's status in Isaiah 7, 14. Another piece of evidence that Isaiah meant virgin when he used Alma is this. In Matthew 1.23, he's quoting from the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures called the Septuagint. Anybody hear about that? Anybody here hear about the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures? Matthew, when he's writing his gospel, is actually quoting from that Septuagint, from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. 
those who translated the, the Septuagint were Jewish scholars. And they translated the Hebrew word Alma in Isaiah 7.14 to the Greek Parthenos, which clearly and obviously and only ever means virgin. And this was done by Jewish scholars, wait, 200 years before Jesus was born. And that's what Matthew is quoting from. So Matthew is quote. this is 200 years before Matthew wrote his gospel and promoted the Jewish controversy that Jesus was born of a virgin and was the Jewish Messiah. But probably the strongest piece of evidence that Isaiah 7.14 is referring to the future Messiah is in the prophecy itself. When Isaiah is giving the prophecy to King Ahaz, Ahaz is in very dire trouble. Two nations were threatening to attack and invade Judah and completely annihilate him and completely annihilate his entire bloodline. Whose bloodline was that? David's bloodline. The ultimate threat then was to the line of David. The line of David at that point was about to be extinguished and the second Samuel prophecy of an internal kingdom from David left unfulfilled. Isaiah goes to Ahaz with his toddler son and tells Ahaz to ask for a sign that God would protect him and therefore the Davidic line. A miraculous sign, you can go back and read this, as deep as the place of the dead and as high as the heavens. In other words, Ahaz had an unlimited possibility, an unlimited choice of a miraculous sign to ask for. He had the limit of the place of the dead all the way up to the height of the heavens. That was his possibility. Instead, out of false piety, Ahaz refuses to do this. And in response, Isaiah gave not specifically to Ahaz, but to his bloodline of David, a miraculous sign as deep as the place of the dead or as high as the heavens. And what was that sign? Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign as deep as the place of the dead and as high as the heavens. Behold, that's what this sign is going to be. A virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. That's what that sign will be. You don't necessarily see it in the translated English, but according to one biblical scholar, if you go back to the original Hebrew, you'll see that it says, Behold, the virgin will be with child. Not a, not any old virgin. The virgin will be with child. There was a very important and specific reason for this. This specific reference does not describe a random woman in Israel during the 700s B.C. when Isaiah is originally prophesying this. Isaiah undoubtedly had a vision of a specific virgin who would be pregnant, and not just pregnant, but pregnant with Emmanuel. Coupled with Isaiah's references in Isaiah 9 about mighty God and everlasting Father, the term Emmanuel is also clearly a divine title. And not just a child's first name, like Emmanuel Smith or something like that. 
It's clearly a divine title. Only, and this is what I want us to see here, only a miraculous conception within a virgin's womb resulting in the birth of a child entitled God with us would be a sign as deep as the place of the dead and as high as the heavens. Only that sign would suffice. There's nothing more humanly impossible and therefore divinely miraculous than a virgin pregnancy and it being the Son of the Most High God. Amen? Furthermore, the following verse says, by, this time, by the time this child is old enough to choose what is right and reject what is wrong, he will be eating yogurt and honey. Now you might wonder, why is that important? I'm not going to go into all the details of this reference, but the reference to yogurt and honey, or curds and honey, is actually a description of political and economic oppression. You might wonder how that is. Well, when an enemy nation would want to curtail a land that they've conquered, one practice was to cut down all the crops so that all that would remain would be fields filled with grass. An abundance of grass, and therefore not crops, would increase the population of what? Cattle, right? Things to eat those gra that grass. And the overproduction of cattle would result in an overproduction of what? Dairy products, right? In addition, the creation of wild fields not filled with crops would produce an increased wild bee population, therefore increasing wild honey production. A land beholden to another nation would have to feed their children more dairy products and honey instead of fruits and vegetables. This reference did not describe the land of Judah at the time of King Ahaz. Everybody with me? This description does not describe the kingdom of Judah at the time that Isaiah is giving this prophecy to King Ahaz. Likewise, this describes a land that is still populated. This does not describe a land that is completely decimated, as with the Babylonian destruction and captivity of the land of Judah, and the future Roman complete destruction of it in 70 AD. But the land that is described here is still under political and economic oppression. This, descript this description would fit the Roman occupation of Judah and the surrounding area perfectly at the time that Jesus was born. So this prophesied child conceived by the virgin in Isaiah 7, 14 through 15, the angel tells Matthew in Matthew 1, 23, is that child that Mary is carrying around in her womb. He is the fulfillment of of Isaiah 7.14. Not only that, but because Mary's unborn child is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, guess what else he is? He is Emmanuel. God with us. So we have the deliberation. We have the disclosure. Everything that is wrapped up in what the angel tells Matthew in verses 22 and 23. And thirdly, we have the decision. 
verse 24. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The angel has given Joseph the message from God, and now it's up to Joseph with what he's going to do about it. He has a decision to make. What's Joseph going to do about it? We read here in verse 24 that like his betrothed wife Mary, Joseph takes the angel at his word and completely obeys God's command to him. We read here in verse 24, and this is what's important. We read here in verse 24 that Joseph violated societal custom and did not adhere to waiting that until that full one-year betrothal period was over, but obeyed God's command immediately and married Mary. Took Mary as his wife. He said, I'm going to buck that custom and I'm going to obey God's command immediately and marry Mary. No matter what gossip flew around, no matter what shame was connected with his household, Joseph remained obedient connecting himself with Mary's cultural shame and caring for Mary as his wife. That's strong faith, isn't it? Not caring what society or anyone else thinks about your obedience to God. We even see that Joseph went above and beyond his obedience to God's command to take Mary as his wife and forsook his right as a husband to have relations with her. We read that in verse 25. But he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. Now this still makes sense in connection with Luke chapter 2 verse 5 where Mary is said to still be Joseph's betrothed when they set out for Bethlehem. Even though here Joseph legally marries Mary, thus legally accepting the child in her womb as his son, she still wasn't fully his wife yet in the Jewish biblical sense because they still didn't technically consummate their marriage until after Jesus was born. So there's no contradiction between the two gospel accounts. The point is, is that Joseph knew the importance of his son fulfilling the prophecy that he would be born from a virgin. He knew the importance about that. And he did not want to interfere with people somehow believing that Jesus was his natural born son. Joseph put the importance of of people believing in his legal son as the Messiah over his own personal desires. God commanded Joseph to set aside everything he wanted his life to be and pictured his life to be and do what God wanted him to do. And Joseph obeyed even beyond the command God gave to him. Joseph had confidence that even if it defied human custom, God would take care of him and would take care of Mary and would take care of their son. Even though we're not Joseph or Mary, and we're not in this situation, is God commanding you to trust Him with something that human standards don't agree with? That make no sense to society? That make no sense to, to the world? Or human logic, even? 
Is there something that God is commanding you to do, even if it means giving up some of your personal rights or desires? Is there something that God is asking you to do that is above and beyond what you are naturally comfortable with or think you can do? Have the courage that Joseph had to obey God and place his kingdom above what you want your life to be. After all, that's the point of our lives, isn't it? To seek the kingdom of God above all else after we accept Jesus as our King and Savior. What does that mean? Seek the kingdom of God above all else. And it means above anything and everything we want. It means above anything and everything that makes sense to this world. It means above anything and everything that logically makes sense. Joseph sought the kingdom of God above all else when he obeyed God immediately and defied cultural standards. He probably made his family quite upset, I'm sure. Don't you think so? They may or may not have understood or agreed with what Joseph did in still marrying Mary. But Joseph didn't care. He only cared about what God thought of him and what God wanted him to do. And you know what? That needs to be our mindset as well. Not caring about what anybody else thinks, but what God thinks. Similar to Mary's immediate obedience to God, knowing full well what could await her and him, Joseph knew full well what awaited him but chose to rather trust God with what would happen. He didn't let his fear or asking what if dictate what he would do. He let his faith in Almighty God dictate what he would do. No matter what God calls us to obey Him in, we too must respond with unquestioning obedience and faith. Like Mary, Joseph did not lead an easy life. It's not like all the stigma of marrying Mary and raising that child as his own legal firstborn son went away after they moved back to Nazareth. You think it disappeared at all? Not at all. It was there. People didn't forget. People knew. Joseph still had to obey God every day as he made his, uh, his living as a carpenter in Roman-occupied and taxed Galilee, ignoring everyone's judgment and raising the Son of God as his own child. He still had to obey God every day. Talk about stress then we can infer that he perhaps died an untimely death because he's not around at the time Jesus starts his ministry or dies on the cross. But trusting God, no matter what anyone thinks of you, is always the best place to be. Always. It's not the easiest, but it's always the best, and it's always the most blessed. 
When Jesus commanded that we seek the kingdom of God above all else, he said in the same exact breath that we're freed up to do so, because if we do, we can rest assured that God will take care of all of our needs. So, let us all seek the kingdom of God above all else. Above all broken dreams, above all physical pain, above all poverty, above all sickness, above all loss, above all darkness and depression, above all anxiety and fear, above all earthly or human ambition, and above all personal plans. Let us be one with God and ask Him what He wants us to do. And then let us run with all the power He gives us to obey Him in those things. And like Mary and Joseph's obvious and blatant obedience to God, let us be shining examples of complete trust in faith in God's provision and plan to all of those around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for what this message was to Joseph and what he did with it. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here who's wrestling with something, who's struggling with something, who know that you've commanded them to do something, but it's not easy, it doesn't make any worldly sense, Lord, I pray that you would fill them with your power to obey you completely and to obey you immediately. Lord, I pray that you would fill us all with your faith to do what you tell us to do fully and immediately, not caring about what anybody else thinks, but only caring about what you think. And let us lead the best and most blessed life we possibly can have. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.